This is A Million Little Gods. I'm Aaron Gowan. Still in production on the upcoming season, book three. But in the meantime, sending out some occasional treats for my listeners. And that's what this is. So back in the very first episode of the podcast, The Anxiety of Influence from July of 2015, I had the honor, you'll recall, to talk to my guest today, Stephen Metcalf, critic at large at Slate and one of the panelists on Slate's venerable Culture Gap Fest. He's had that gig for about 14 years now, which is pretty impressive. What I recall about Steve's contribution to that first episode is that he he gave it a lot of pathos by providing his trenchant analysis of why some people have this sense of forestalled grandiosity. And then in book two, episode nine of the podcast, I had a lengthy discursus about the weird way that that moral norms, at least the ones we socially profess, are fungible. And that was informed by some things that Steve had said on the GabFest, which I'd written to him about and he'd written back about. And it was all so interesting. I just, I knew I wanted to talk to him about it. So I asked him if he would have a conversation with me and he was gracious enough to say yes. That conversation then in turn sparked my three-part essay, Best Behavior, part two of which was released yesterday. I figure I've talked about that chat so much that some of you might be interested in in hearing it. So without further ado, here it is, my conversation with Steve Metcalf. The reason that we were having this conversation was I did a thing back in the summer. I did a thing on Ted Williams and I had cause to make a, an analogy to something that you had made mention of in the, the Culture Gap Fest about Woody Allen. I was mentioning that Ted Williams or something about Ted Williams had recently been exposed that was actually completely apparent to everyone if they had been paying attention, which is that he is in fact was rather Latino. And by some definition, he was Latino, although he never accepted and never presented himself and never, you know, fronted that identity. So one could question whether he deserves, as it were, to even have that identity. And, you know, being playful, looking for a a kind of cheap trick, I I made a comparison because we were actually doing an episode on um, statistics and model building. And my idea here was to take a very wide, broad definition of model building and to say that our kind of ethical model that we were building would try to take new parameters into account. And this parameter didn't seem like it was a salient parameter. That was my, you know, uh, somewhat twee <laughs> analogy that I was making. And so then I I made this comparison to what you said in the Culture Gap Fest, which is namely, um, and, and actually Mariel Hemingway has, has come out and said something recently about about this herself, that that Manhattan was just just this massive hit. It was this um, not a, it was a cultural touchstone, as you put it, right? It's this this movie that that you kind of needed to see if you wanted to understand the silver period of Hollywood, this the silver era of Hollywood, the uh, movie brat era, the late 60s to early 80s period of, of filmmaking, you kind of needed to know Woody Allen's Manhattan. And, you know, it was it was beloved by the Cognacenti. And, and, and it entailed this bizarre story in which I, I think it was 40, the character is 42 and, and Mariel Hemingway's character is 17 in the story. And, you know, knowing all, everything that we know about Woody Allen now, we've suddenly decided that that's actually kind of abhorrent <laughs> and wrong. Um, but but we never thought of that. And, and even even as of like, as you said, maybe going f- back five, five, six years, one would never have have said that 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 movie was objectionable. And, and it brought me to uh, consider this fact that that some moral standards that we have are completely fungible. That is, they they weren't there before so how do we how do we justify that lack of morality if we think of morality as something that is that is in some sense eternal so that there there you go that's that's my setup you take it away from there well yeah i mean it's a it's a totally fascinating question why do we need to experience morality as fixed even though when we subject it to any kind of analysis or historical perspective, we see that it's somehow culturally specific and therefore not, you know, a transcendent part of either us or the world uh, of either human nature or nature. And is that totally destabilizing? Does it turn us into nihilists? You know, I mean, these questions go all the way back to the first considerations of what morality, you know, might or might not be. To backfill a little bit, or you did it justice, but 
you know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, Manhattan is not just another movie and Woody Allen is not just another movie maker. I think generationally, probably people under the age of 40 and certainly under the age of 30 probably don't fully appreciate this fact. But first of all, he he has to be included, as you say, in the silver age of truly great American filmmakers. This was a period where for the first time American filmmaking under the inspiration and influence of the French New Wave was controlled artistically controlled, commercially controlled, financially controlled to a shocking degree by directors. And the director is auteur and the director is celebrity and kind of Hollywood godhead, you know, hit its real peak in this 10 to 12 year period that you identify famously from Bonnie and Clyde in the late 60s to Raging Bull in the early 80s. Even by those standards, Woody Allen was somewhat unique because you know, auteurism, the idea of the auteur, the director as an author, admits of two somewhat conflicting definitions, one of which, which was formulated by Truffaut, is, you know, going back and looking at old factory-made Hollywood movies that were not meant to be distinctive artistic expressions on the part of the single author, you nonetheless find traces, very evident to Truffaut, traces of a personal signature. And so you can go back and rehabilitate as if they needed it. But in some sense, William Wyler, Hitchcock, you know, these gods of of Hollywood and commercial filmmaking who actually put a very personal stamp on what they were doing, even though bear in mind, they didn't have financial or commercial control over the project, nor did they write the movies. Overwhelmingly, they didn't. I mean, almost exclusively, they didn't. I guess Billy Wilder, a couple of other exceptions. But And then the second definition of auteur, which Truffaut, not as a critic, but as an actual filmmaker, turned into a reality, which is you produce, write, and direct a relatively low-budgeted or moderately budgeted film over which you have total artistic control, and which is not only, not only has semi-hidden signatures of your own personal style, it tells your own autobiographical story. And in the case of many of his movies, features an alter ego, someone playing him a version of Truffaut, and also bearing a self-conscious relationship to literature. You know, if you go back and watch The 400 Blows, that movie is an homage to the reading, the literary reading of its character in the process of self-formation, who becomes Truffaut, who can make literary style movies. The American filmmaker in the 1970s most picked up the Truffaut ideal, funnily enough, and he doesn't get credit enough for it, is Woody Allen. I mean, he writes and directs his films. He achieves a remarkable degree of commercial control over the films. He casts them. He pays attention to every last detail of the movie. He writes the film. And they not only feature his alter ego, for example, Alvy Singer and Woody Allen, he plays, he plays the character, right? <laughs> and this culminates in Annie Hall, for which he wins Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor and Best Screenplay, right? I mean, I, I believe that that is how he ran the table. And he doesn't go to the ceremony, the ultimate baller move, he doesn't go. <laughs> Instead, he plays clarinet and uh, uh, his weekly gig in New York City. Um, so that's the ultimate Hollywood will to power. It's like, I not only win everything, I don't even show up and don't even care. Mm. So bear in mind now jumping ahead, his next movie, with this is how he spends his, his now unrivaled Hollywood capital is he makes Manhattan. Manhattan shot in black and white begins with bravura sequence uh, featuring um, Rhapsody in Blue, the great Gershwin. And it's it comes at a specific moment, not only in the history of Woody Allen and American film, but in the city of New York. The city of New York right now is being poeticized as an apocalyptic cesspit by Scorsese and other filmmakers and Taxi Driver and, you know, more popularly Escape from New York, various movies. And this is the common understanding of New York City, against which Woody Allen says, I not only am I going down with my ship, okay, it's still the greatest fucking ship in the world. It's still <laughs> the greatest place to be in the entire world. I love this city, and I'm going to make the most exquisite cinematic poem uh, owed to it in this movie, Manhattan. Well, you could tell that story and you could bracket out the Mariel Hemingway part. The fact that the movie features as its central plot device, a relationship between a 40-year-old twice divorcee and a 17-year-old private school kid, right? You bracket all that out. And that's an extraordinary story of artistic self-completion. 
but we can't anymore. But we did. I mean, this is where your question now comes in saliently. We did for a nearly a generation, we did. And then all of a sudden we didn't, and we saw the same thing completely differently. And so the question is, what was there all along? What is there now? And what's our relationship to our own belief systems and our sense of moral outrage? And uh, there, I think the question becomes troubled and therefore incredibly interesting. Mm. Can I ask a, another this direction this question from another direction? Yes, of course. Somebody else speaking with this, I'll leave this person anonymous, but another person asked me if you considered Homer and and not Homer Simpson, but rather the, the epic poet, <laughs> the other Homer, <laughs> the other Homer. So if you consider Homer and and you think of his worldview and and the worldview that is espoused in the two epic poems we have and some you know smaller poems then there's this culture that is dominated by you know slavery by mm. um by the expenditure of human lives at 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 you know individuals wills um there is uh, massive death and violence and yet on the whole would Homer or, you know, whoever was living 3,500 years ago, would the people then have been ethically as culpable as we are today with all of the socioeconomic status that some of us, have, most of us in, in the cultures that we live in, have over and against uh, other cultures, the amount of just pure utilitarian evil that we do or that we are, that we just acquiesce in mm -hmm. every day probably outweighs anything that anybody who was living in Homer's time uh, were responsible for. Are we better people than they are now because we've brought other facts to light? Or is it just a is it just a different way of ethically building the world? And this makes me uncomfortable. I'm not a moral relativist. I don't like moral relativism. It gives me deep distaste. And yet I can't answer that question very easily. I don't know that we're better people. I don't know that people get better over mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Uh, well, maybe, maybe it's possible to think about this with an analogy to science, which I typically resist, but maybe in this instance, it's helpful somewhat. I'm basically freestyling here, so go with me. But, but, you know, in science, it's possible to make an error, a good faith error, right? And to be wrong. And within the canons of science, there are ways of understanding that error through, you know, repetition, falsification, whatever, um, it's possible to consciously and fraudulently falsify a result. And then there's the paradigm shift, the famous Cunian paradigm shift, which so alters the framework, the conceptual framework within which the work is being done, that what counts as right or wrong is suddenly revealed as a function of the direction of our attention and our mm. needs in some sense. And those shift so fundamentally that it seems as though factuality shifts along with it. I'd be reluctant to say that that's really what happened, happens, but in some important sense, the paradigm shift so alters the way that we see the world and conceive of ourselves within the world as actors that what counts as right and wrong is just fundamentally, fundamentally different. Mm. Um, and Clearly, there have been innumerable paradigm shifts between our world and that of Homer. And I guess one interesting question is, if we determine constancies across the, that many paradigm shifts, and that's why we still read Homer, is there a feature of human nature that is a constant or functions as a constant that allows us to inherit his worldview in some way that's still sensible with our own? I'm not sure about that, but maybe. Or... Are we so far beyond a common paradigm that making either moral judgments or trying to enforce ethical imperatives um, across paradigms just makes no sense? I think the Woody Allen case is in some ways possibly more interesting for being so much closer to home and the time yeah. frame being so compressed, right? We're not, we're within living memory. I mean, I am a person who saw I saw the movie Manhattan for the nth time. I mean, I, I saw it when it came out, right? But the night that my first daughter was born. Okay. We, not, not the night, I'm sorry. The night we came home with her from the hospital. She was born five weeks early. We were in a state of complete shock. Mm. Uh, we had 
we we just sort of naively assumed, oh, pregnancy is 35 or 40 weeks or whatever. It's 40 weeks. So it'll be 40 weeks. Maybe it'll be 38. Maybe it'll be 42. Well, it was 34 or whatever it was. I think it was 34, 35. And we had nothing. We had no equipment, none whatsoever. And a f- un- unlikely, an unlikely friend, not like a, su- like not a super close friend, but just a frigging mensch went out and bought all the stuff while we were at the hospital. So we came home to like a Moses basket and diapers and whatever. <laughs> and we were missing one thing and I'll never forget. I walked out on the streets of Brooklyn and there had been, this was back when, uh, uh, on the border between the Heights and Cobble Hill, there was still, there was still a lot of, um, jails or at least one major jail. Mm. And there'd been a jailbreak. And I walked out on the streets of Brooklyn and I was followed by a helicopter and a spotlight for like <laughs> half a block. Like maybe oh, I was the God. jailbird. And I had that weird feeling of like, this is somehow weirdly appropriate. Like I'm a completely different human being than I was before. I've escaped a former life. Maybe they are looking for me. Ah! And I don't have a diaper, you know? And uh, anyway, I, I, and I came home and our daughter fell asleep in the little Moses basket and Manhattan came on TV. And it just happened to be there. It wasn't sought out. It was just there. And you're in this rhapsodic delirium already. And the music comes on and the cinematography, the black and white cinematography, I can't remember the name of the very famous cinematographer, but this exquisitely produced film. Mm. And I loved it. I I mean, I I got to the end of it and I said, perhaps that is one of the five greatest movies ever made. You know, I mean, and extraordinary. And I just, I was not operating yet within the shifted paradigm. I was back, at this time where, of course, the piquancy of the movie, right, is in the age discrepancy. But something really changed, and it's interesting to get at what. I mean, one could possibly be, we have a better understanding of how sexual relationships are inherently power relationships, right? And we no longer think of a 17-year-old as someone who could give consent. We don't, we don't think of it as within the power, full powers of her agency, I think, to have consented to that relationship. And um, I think that those are, those, are, those are big changes. I mean, clearly we were not seeing with those eyeglasses back when this movie came out, and I wasn't seeing with them as late as 18 years ago. So how do we square? I mean, this is where the question gets interesting. Everyone sort of understands that this shift happened. How do we, where did the eyeglasses come from? Are we seeing an objective fact of the world? Have we progressed in some sense and become more ethically or morally mature for seeing this? Um, And how do we move forward with moral confidence that something is inherently wrong and the fact that some, the fact that we intuitively believe or reasonably believe that something is inherently wrong has to be partially the source. It's certainly the source of many people's moral courage, right? So where from where do we take moral courage if we're, you know, Rortian pragmatists about or Jamesian pragmatists about, you know, evil? I, mm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I have an answer, but I, I like formulating the question and then trying to exist in its ambivalences um, because I don't think we can wish them away. No. By my own lights, I would say that we do see something more objective um, and that that paradigm shift, as you mentioned, I think that it's an important point that you make that these kind of Kuhnian paradigm shifts are not necessarily, you know, world shifting. That is to say, meaning um, in some ways dictated by the rigid rigidity of nature um, mm-hmm. and, and actual facts of the world. And I'd like to believe that we see something about social relationships that is a, a universal fact that we can look all the way back to Homer and see that sexual relationships, and there are plenty of those there, uh, were obviously power relationships in, in that context and they're power relationships now. That is a fact that that I think is universal and we've learned to be more subtle in our appreciation of that. Uh, I don't want to turn this into a cancel culture uh, conversation because it's not that. But of course, when we move towards that kind of subtlety, do we also, though, do damage to the ability of people to adapt 
to our our new worldview. That is to say, um, mm. it's it's hard as as paradigms shift and and our cultural perspectives change. It's hard for us as individuals living in the world to adapt to those new perspectives and to then change our own behaviors, especially when they when we have a whole past behind us that we were held culpable for or we are held, we are right. held responsible for as well. Yeah. No. I mean, and, and how do you aspire to? moral universe, universality in a culture that aspires to plurality, right? And the individual pursuit of happiness. It's, it's a problem, right? It's not, it's not, there's no formulaic answer to that. It's the balance that a democratic society, you know, through its liberal and democratic institutions tries to work out on a daily basis, because at the end of the day, our notion of justice includes an ideal of blindness. Blindness includes within it the idea of universality and and anonymity, right? That there's a, a degree of anonymity. That 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 if person X commits act Y, you know, punishment Z flows forth algebraically and not as a condition of, you know, their economic or social power. On and on and on as an ideal, right? Of course, we fail the ideal, right, left and center. But you know, universality is 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 a non-negotiable feature of a lawful society, I, I would think, right? At the same time, you know, we have a, a deep and important libertarian streak and we exist as, as moderns and we believe that the indiv individual pursuit of, of, of dignity, uh, if not happiness, at least maybe dignity, is, is critical to our identity as human beings. And I mean, to ground this a little bit, when you take the instance of Manhattan, you're at this curious intersection of changing manners, right? I mean, it, it, changing manners and changing laws are very different things, but they're deeply related with one another. I mean, very often you have to have a, a very non-coercive and somewhat organic shift in manners before you can universalize the new principle as law. And in all of the you know, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to be glib when I use this word, but in all of the interesting examples of cancel culture, you're at this now excruciating intersection of, of manners and, and lawfulness, often lawfulness in a smaller sense of workplace, you know, enforceable workplace rules, right? So, you know, the, the question of whether or not you actually articulate the full N-word or whether you never do because of its completely unique status, which I actually agree with. I mean, in the English language, I mean, it's power to degrade. I, I, I mean, almost no word, if impossibly no word, you know, contains within it the ability to wound and dehumanize, right, as a condition of its history. And it's not, it wasn't a very settled question. I mean, and and it went it went very quickly as a generational shift almost from being a very unsettled question that someone like Tana Hesse Coates as recently as 10 years ago said, oh, this is ridiculous that white people say the N-word as opposed to saying yep. the word, right? Um, to 10 years later, some kind of paradigmatic, paradigmatic and I think generational shift having happened. And it's so unforgivable that, you know, for example, a person could be suspended for discussing whether or not, right? I mean, not even using it, but discussing whether or not. I take no position on this. It's very close to home, as you probably know, but it's mm. still, it's, it's what do you do in that gray moment where manners appear to be shifting? Many people in the United, I mean, we are fighting a constant culture war, virtually permanent permanently stalemated, completely acrimonious culture, culture war cold in this war. country. Yeah. Yeah, the cultural cold war. I, you know, if you believe in some standard of non-coercion, right, you can't just by edict say, okay, now this and everyone agrees with it, that's radically non-democratic and, and disrespectful in some sense. You know, how do you exist in this world where there are pockets of nearly absolutist belief about certain things, moral, you know, you know, moral uh, questions, and they're not widely shared? Like, and how do you proceed in a dialogue to arrive at a sufficient consensus to turn a, ma a matter of manners into a matter of, of law. I don't, I don't know. I mean, you just have to exist in this war zone and, and take care to be respectful of others while not abandoning your own principles. That music you hear is not my favorite sound. You want to know what my favorite sound is? To quote one of the greatest figures in all of Western canon, Lucy Van Pelt, Oh, what a sound. How I love to hear that nickel plink. 
I love the sound of cold, hard cash. Nickels, nickels, nickels. Seriously, folks, that music is a sign that it's time for me to ask you for some remuneration for all the hard work I'm putting in here. If you've recently enjoyed the righteous call-and-response trenchancy of Ayanura Dean and Nathaniel Comfort, or if you're enjoying Steve Metcalf's urbane yet heartfelt reflections, or, you know, me, then consider becoming a subscriber to A Million Little Thoughts on Substack. My thoughts have evolved so much since this interview with Steve Metcalf, inspired by some of the suggestions he makes at the end. But here's the thing. It costs me time and money to produce these podcasts, so I'm eventually going to have to start putting them behind a paywall. So if you feel like these interviews and my weekly essays are an enriching addition to your week, then please do subscribe. Thanks. Do you think that this is what John Stuart Mill imagined as a proper liberal society? That kind of like the culture, like a, a just a war zone, a, a marketplace of ideas as a war zone? Uh, it doesn't seem right to me. No, I mean, I, 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 I hope uh, not. As we're having a conversation here, and by the way, us having this conversation, we're still affording Woody Allen the luxury of being discussed in a, you know, mildly intellectual conversation about film and about ethics and morals that, you know, that kind of recognition doesn't go to other people. So it's still happening in that sense. But um, is there some sense in which we need to live in a society in which these kinds of discussions happen at a less tempered in a more tempered environment and and that's the unhealth of our society as we as we exist right now and not the conversations but rather just the the fever pitch at which we carry them out i mean i love the idea that we could you know and there's this idea that the rational part of ourselves can divorce itself from the id portion of our and by definition is separate from the id portion of our personality or the reptile brain or whatever and our less reactive more contemplative self is capable of of entering into a dialogue with anybody else's less reactive more contemplative self what's interesting about the cultural criticism of the last 30 to 40 years is how much that's been placed under suspicion as obscuring inherently asymmetrical power relations, mm. especially on an identity basis. And so I still have this ideal of like a community of scholars, a, you know, Senate full of wise legislators, a marketplace of ideas in which the foolish is eventually edged out by the the wise or the judicious. And I find it very hard to relinquish those. And yet, on the one hand, there's reality, which is that Twitter and social media and cable TV news are the public square now more than, you know, the New Republic and <laughs> you're in my podcast, you know. And uh, I think a very serious, at its best, a very serious and considered criticism from the further left on on what basis do reason people achieve reason and then dialogue with one another? And can we examine those power relations uh, for what they are? I mean, think about the revolution in thought that goes into saying Tracy, the character in Manhattan, has not made, is not in possession of agency and has not made a decision on her own behalf um, mm. or, or can't or shouldn't. You know, I mean, because he writes the movie very carefully, as critics have pointed out, and, and feminist critics have now done a brilliant job of placing in front of us that he actually very carefully makes her hypersexual. There, there are very key moments in the film where he says to her, you're an animal in bed, you're the one who whatever. And that allows him to completely divorce his own lechery, mm. right? His own, this, the, the question of his own lechery and the fetishization of, of a very, very, very young, essentially child, that's the means by which that gets edged to the side and made to disappear. The larger point being that I just have such a hard time not seeing one gain in civic hopefulness over the last 40 years being the idea that for some to speak, others have been silenced. And if we believe in democracy, we have to try to understand how the ability to speak is maldistributed in society mm. according to you know, inherited categories that ultimately to a democratic poly, polity ought to be arbitrary. And, you know, the interesting thing about the Tracy case is in a way what you're doing is looking back and saying she wasn't capable of speaking or thinking for herself. I mean, there is a way in which 
what you're saying is her agency was incomplete at the age of 17. Therefore, she couldn't choose to be in this relationship freely. And therefore, society, by a ma- as a matter of law, has to make that decision for her. But that also doesn't come from nowhere. That doesn't come from somewhere totally arbitrary. That comes from the unsilencing of people who suffered abuse, mm. right? Spotlight, you know, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, uh, the prep schools, the private schools, you know, the 1970s, in addition to being a golden age of cinema, were a golden age of pedophilia. And, and you know, those people have stepped forward and, and testified to it. And so there is a way in which, as a protective measure, you, uh, you draw an arbitrary line at the age of 18, you say up until that age, a person is not capable of acting as an agent on their own sexual behalf or whatever age. I mean, it's state by state. At some age states, it's much lower, mm. but it's got to be drawn somewhere. It, it ha- I think it has to be drawn given that discrepancies in power relationships in, in power relations end up in abusive situations. And our notion of what counts as speech in the marketplace of ideas, I think has got to be reformed alongside with that. So I, I still love the idea of reasoned sages and a perfect community of scholars. And I just think we need to interrogate that skeptically without somehow abandoning it, if that's possible. One way in which that poses a problem is that the kind of liberal organization of a society places the individual as the onus and the and the arbiter of the right and the wrong, uh, the decider, Mm -hmm. and also held responsible. It's not of the nature of lawmaking and jurisprudence to adjudicate on the suffering of groups as much as it is on Mm -hmm. the, the suffering of individuals. This is just the way our society has been organized. And, and I think that that continues to pose a problem, isn't, doesn't it? Uh, what do we do when when there's a kind of systematic problem? You know, I mean, I, we have class action lawsuits and so forth, but but nonetheless, mostly we think of victims as the individual. Mm-hmm. Rawls was dealing with this problem in the 70s, <laughs> 70s, 60s, 70s, but uh, it's hard to kind of square that circle, isn't it? Yeah, it's very hard. I mean... One way to do it is to be sneakily colorblind and and identity blind and just talk in terms of socioeconomic categories. And because ironically, because of the history of you know racism and other forms of exclusion and exploitation in this culture, if you alleviate poverty, you overwhelmingly flow or substantially flow benefits to historically disesteemed groups of people opening up the possibility of demagoguing socialism as prejudicial against whites, right? I mean, that's where oh, God, this okay. kind of... <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's you open, you you close one door, you open another, right? Like the easy choices, we've already made the easy choices. We already benefit from the easy choices. The choices left to us to actually make are the hard ones. And this is one of the hard ones. And, you know, among the reasons we have so much less socialism in America compared to our peers is that you can racially demagogue colorblind economically based policies because we've been so ironically so freaking racist that when you give a minimum wage, when you give a social safety net, when you give, you know, a a family leave, when you give like all of these public benefits um, to anyone of a certain economic class without regard to race, on the other side of the veil of ignorance, it turns out those benefits are going to flow overwhelmingly to blacks and Hispanics in America. So it's there for Fox News and Tucker Carlson to, you know, proclaim as, you know, whatever, as all of the, you know, all of the things that the right has said since Reagan about and going back all the way to the founding of the country have said, you know, social welfare is, you know, a, a coddling of people who you know can't take care of themselves. I mean, you know, so... I, you know, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But can I ask you a question? Please. So 
I'm curious about, it sounds as though you have a visceral aversion to moral relativism. Uh, I kind of do. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. And is it also an intellectually principled one in that you are not actually a moral relativist and you, and you regard certain things as completely unrelative, that they're somehow transcendent. And then my follow-up question would be, uh, transcendent how rooted in what oh god okay. piece of the universe where's your where's your archimedean lever here where is it planted well if i have to be uh you know perfectly honest and this this makes me uncomfortable to admit i was raised catholic and therefore i think um i have a kind of predilection just by you know uh cultural heritage um and therefore uh, possibly purely an accident, right? An accident of my origin in the world. I believe in transcendence uh, because it it feels aesthetically right to me. But then I also believe that in the end, morality is a kind of aesthetic decision. Mm. I, I believe nobody's been able to formulate this as well as Kant. We have to behave as though our inner law that we make for ourselves mm -hmm. could be universal. And right. um, that's important to me, I think. That is, uh, I don't know that it's universal and I have to, I think it's it's constantly up for re reappraisal, but that can only happen with this presumption that there is an eternal law that I'm, that I'm, that is always eluding me in some way that I'm trying to get around and wrap my head around. And I think everybody mm -hmm. is trying to wrap their head around. So I pick out three dominant flavors there and tell me if I'm wrong. The one is the Catholicism of your youth, which over time went from being maybe a moral and transcendental fact to a more of an aesthetic and temperamental one, an appreciation for being raised in that structure maybe, mm. but it sounds as though you lapsed a little bit. And then there was another interesting flavor, which was morality as an set of, as an aesthetics of the self at some level, which is vaguely Nietzschean. And then, yeah, I and know. then you came, <laughs> and then you came back around to Kant and the categorical imperative. Mm -hmm. uh, do those things kind of dance in unison with one another? Or are they slugging it out? I think they may be slugging it out. That's a good question. That is a very good question. Um, <laughs> I think they're slugging it out. Um, I, 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 I may, can I plead the fifth on this? That is, can I say? No, I you can absolutely. You're the host. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for for thank you for taking over the hosting job. Um, I uh, uh, I don't. I think there's a sense in which, as I read Nietzsche, he sees the world as tremendous, right? Like he sees his own human existence mm. as tremendous, and I think that's oh, fantastic. Yeah. That is, yes. he sees his own he sees his own conscious existence as somehow um, obviously transcendent. In that way, he's a kind of Cartesian, right? I mean, he just sees the kind of self-existence as uh, something that needs to be cherished, and um, what he does and with that protractedly, I'm no, I don't know that I I follow follow Nietzsche in that sense. Right. I I think right. though that that I I try to temper that, uh, and I think that that's in the end what Kant was getting at in the in the end as well. The, that is that um, uh, his individual conscious is going to conscience is going to make decisions about what he thinks is right or wrong. Um, but then, uh, it's going to, uh, it, it has to, in some sense, um, mm, temper or, or chastise itself with the facts of the world. And, and in as much as it, it sees a possibility of there being something morally, uh, morally abject in, in, in its own behavior, then it ought to accept that as probably the right law. And I think that that, that I believe, I believe that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. Uh, it sounds like they were sort of it was more like capoeira. They were dancing and fighting at the same time. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that works. Um, I think I'm, I'm not unlike you in that, you know, I grew up not Catholic, but in a fairly, within a fairly, like within an extremely stable set of middle-class slash educated upper-middle-class expectations and worldviews that seemed transcendent, right? They, for, whatever, whatever a child experiences is utterly stable, they experience as transcendent and universal, I think, mm. to some degree. I mean, the more stable it is, the more, you know, whatever, sheltered in some ways uh, an upbringing is, the more it mistakes itself for somehow existing everywhere and for all time. Mm. And um, it's hard to relinquish. And, and as you become, you know, quote unquote, sophisticated, at least by the lights of, you know, critical theory or whatever, or just history and literature, you see all of that as 
totally contingent mm. in some sense. And, and, and in looking to square those two things, like Kant is always very helpful. You know, I mean, you can kind of get both maybe to kind of go together via Kant. And so I have that same attraction to Kant. I recently discovered Korsgaard is a Christina Korsgaard, the Kantian. Oh, I so highly recommended. I mean, she's just a neo-Kantian and brilliant and you should get her on the show. Oh my God, she's marvelous. And I just feel, I just feel as though her work is inspiring for, you know, bringing Kant down to earth if he wasn't already. I mean, sort of getting rid of some of the transcendental idealism, but, but pragmatically reinterpreting, reinterpreting ideas like the categorical imperative and just the idea that in the way we act, we imply what world we want to live in. Mm. Right. And, you know, in, in the way that Rawls basically says, as I understand him, it's not that justice is there already and we can dig around and find it it's a question of whether we want to organize what we do and how we act and the society we live in in order to call it just and what would be included in that definition but we could just as easily get rid of it i mean you know i mean it's a very pragmatic in the same way that it's just a kind of pragmatic modernization of kant you know without the noumena right without Mm. this magic realm you know um, beyond our phenomenal existences. And Korsgaard just seems to me a very plain-spoken, pragmatic version of of what it is to attempt to com- compose oneself or comport oneself as a, as a moral creature in the world. I just think it's really good. I mean, okay. I, I, would, I would really dig it if you invited her. Okay, Steve, I think with the body proper of this conversation, I think we're done. I have a question for you. Yeah, sure. It's with regard to uh, Louis Menand, Luc Menand, you know, parsing your writing and the writing that you do. I bet you are a big fan of Luc Menand. Uh, yes, yes. I, I took huge inspiration from what Menand was doing, especially when I started reading him back in the 90s. And he was at that point not even affiliated with The New Yorker. It was back in The New Republic and uh, mm-hmm. New York Review of Books. And he wrote these just, to my mind, completely iconic essays about Kale. I mean, just the best thing ever written about Pauline Kale, one of them. Uh, another essay about the New ironically, or maybe not so ironically about the New Yorker that was in the back of the New Republic that I think got him to the attention of the New Yorker. Mm. You know, just some of these essays were so deft. And But the common rootstock is Richard Rorty. Mm-hmm. So as, mm. as Menand has finally, he's been a little squirrely about this over the years. So I've met him and he had said this to me in person. He said, yes, Rorty is one of my gods or whatever. But he didn't seem that eager to have that be a public fact about him for whatever reason. I don't know why. I mean, or maybe I'm misreading or misremembering, but my, my sense was that he just didn't really want to talk about his his love of Rorty all that much. He acknowledged it when we spoke personally, but otherwise not so much. He now has. There are a couple of interviews or at least one interview uh, vis-a-vis the new book where he's much more open about that. And I studied with Rorty at UVA and he mm. completely formed my worldview. So the, so the hugest, single biggest, most moving, most pervasive influence on my sense of a, myself as an intellectual is Rorty, mm. for better and for worse and whatever. I can't do justice to that guy. I mean, he just was immense. And, but, um, Manan claims to have learned from Rorty what I learned, which is that you can, and Manan once put it this way, you don't have to take something on its terms. You can take it on your terms. And I think for a generalist like Manan, that was a very powerful lesson, especially as he transitioned into a general interest format. And then he just has a, he really learned how not to show off and yet be ultimately more impressive by doing it mm-hmm. in ways that are really, really challenging. I mean, how to use pretty fundamentally simple language and a dry wit and a power of observation to say something really quite original and mm. unexpected, but without any recourse to obscurantism or jargon or, you know, just nothing, none of the presto sleight of hand, right? all of the fakey smart stuff that people who are kind of, you know, faking their way through it do. And um, his, the very beginning of his rise coincided with my leaving graduate school. And so for someone like me, this transition from 
cloistered academia to the aspiration to write for the New Yorker and Slate and the New York Times. He was a model of someone who had done that. And uh, yeah, you have to find your own way, right? Like you, you can't end up imitating someone else. And I hope I haven't ended up imitating him too much. But there's a dryness and a remove to his work that cuts against my personality, which is more derisive and judgmental. I know what you mean. There's just more, there's more, my energy and my anger are unfortunately connected to one another. Mm. And if I try to sound like Menand and I cut away my anger, I end up inert. And so for me, the struggle working within his influence to the extent I have has been allowing myself to be overly from his, what, what I think his point of view would be overly morally concerned or to wear my indignation like a little more on my sleeve and then suddenly my my writing is enlivened and it isn't a pale imitation of his. So yeah. it's been a complicated thing. Uh, I met him long, about 20 years ago, right before, right, either right before, right after he won the Pulitzer Prize mm. uh, for Metaphysical Club and, and it was uh, delightful. Yeah. What I'd say about that is, I, I know what you mean. There's something, he is so dispassionate sometimes as to, it, that it's almost off-putting. You want to know where he stands sometimes. That yeah, is, he's, how do you he's feel? People. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on the other side, as you say, he's not afraid, this is maybe a paradox in some way, he's not afraid to make just categorical statements sometimes, which is very <laughs> unusual for, for writers, especially in The New Yorker. Um, there's a, this kind of elliptical way of writing two different opinions that contradict each other and, you know, avoiding using the kind of academic academicians, uh, cautious language. You, you avoid doing that, but nonetheless, you avoid making categorical statements and he's not afraid to make categorical statements. And yet he, he still comes across as dispassionate in some way. And I don't really, I can't quite figure out how he does it or what, what the, what it is about his writing that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but nonetheless, he has this amazing, he's like a, he's like a, like a, like a water bear, right? Like one of those creatures that can live in space because they just dehydrate the desiccate themselves to the extent that they just kind of like sit there and like, and, and then he just processes. He took him like 20 years to write this new book, right? Since the metaphysical club. And he yeah. will just like process all of this information. And then it, it's like, like that kind of flower that has that really hard blossom that then opens up and then suddenly he has all of this stuff in there. And you just wonder mm. how could you, how could, I mean, he's been writing it all, right? Like he'll, he'll, he, it's full of stuff that has been published in the New Yorker over the past 20 years, but, but nonetheless processed in a way that suddenly is just a coherent whole in a way that I wasn't expecting, right? Like suddenly you see little pieces and snippets of things you've read from him before, but then, then suddenly it's this coherent uh, text. So that in that way, you're similar to him. That's why I made this comparison. And the other part of it is that just that like long, long game. That is, you've been writing your book for a long time too. I'm kind of waiting for that mm-hmm. one too. And, and, and I suspect that it's the same kind of book. That's what, that's why I'm asking is that it's, um, I wonder, yeah, I'd, 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 yeah. I'd certainly be count myself lucky if it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just going to end up this tight, hard bolus with no flour. Nah, I, mean, you know, I don't believe it. I don't you know. believe it. <laughs> one other thing, kind of, if I could just add, is because Ro- praising Richard Rorty to me is just as delightful as anything mm. one could do, and and I do think that there's this mode that Rorty had that's myst- it's like a lot of writing. You look at the words and you're like, I know every single one of those words, and and yet when they're put in that order, a kind of tonality a remarkable tonality and force suddenly appears in them, right? And um, and how did that happen, right? Mm. And Rorty's unique gift is this dispassion and calm, which is remarkable, right? Like Rorty is just, the, he's the most paced, measured, you know, something he inherits, I think, I would have once said for better and for worse. Now I think just for better from Dewey, mm. right? This, this kind of measured paced, you know, like just the facts, ma'am. And yet there's a moral force to it mm. that is never mistakable. And it comes from a man absolutely of the left and, um, and a man totally committed to eradicating human suffering, understanding and eradicating human suffering and, and sadism, the sadism that exists in each of us. And, and f- for me, that's why he's insuperable. I mean, that remarkable, I mean, I was just reading as preparation for the show, just reading the first few pages of Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. And it's like 
nobody's mind is more synthetic than his. I mean, it's just mm. remarkable how he's processed sort of all of Western philosophy and much of Western literature and, and can just come out with this very totally clear exposition of it. At the same time, there's this weird urgency to it that you almost can't locate in the in the words or individual sentences but it's there it's just there it's like this is it's important to say this because we fuck each other up so badly and and maybe if i say these words we'll stop doing that at least a little bit mm. and and there's a intelligent skepticism about like the role of writers in fixing it right maybe we have none maybe it's not the role of criticism but then why bother right yeah. i mean at some level you know even if it's just a fucking windmill that's what writing is. It's tilting at it. It's just saying, I kind of think maybe things will be marginally better. If this gets said properly, maybe the world is a marginally better place. And I often don't, I often don't find that in, in, in Manan's work. Yeah. You know? I see what you mean. Yeah. I mean, and maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's also part of the thing where you have to work your way so hard beyond your influences, right? Like Philip Larkin said, you know, Yeats got into his poetry like garlic gets into a kitchen you know and it's like how do you get that how do you get that smell out you know and for me that was Menand absolutely he was the guy who's about 15 or so years older than I am mm. you know maybe a little more and and like how did he do that how did he do that right mm. and on the page and also as a career and you know it's it's tough it's tough it's tough to try to live with someone who's your you know ideal in that way yeah you gotta kill him right (laughs) hey that's our last conversation that's the one we had the very first remember we did the harold bloom conversation the uh yeah anxiety of influence sure Uh, well you gotta kill him i guess gotta kill him Hope you've enjoyed my conversation from last year with Stephen Metcalf. Obviously, not everything worked out as we thought back then. Christine Korsgaard didn't want to chat with me about Woody Allen. But I did immerse myself in, like, all of her stuff. And if you've read my essay, Best Behavior Part 1, you'll know that while I ended up disagreeing with her on several important points... And I can't claim, as Steve does, that her way of grounding normativity in human free will is ultimately convincing. It did help me hone my beliefs about what is good and what is bad. And if you want to investigate a totally different approach to ethics that I think makes more sense than course guards, virtue ethics, you can read about that in Best Behavior Part 3, which is coming soon. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber to A Million Little Thoughts on Substack where I'll be releasing more and extended versions of such interviews to subscribers. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or one of the essays, so write in the comments, and I'll write back. The podcast is online at amillionlittlegods.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Aaron Gowan. The podcast is at AMLG Podcast. We're on Instagram, AMLG underscore podcast. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash a million little gods. I'll talk to you soon.